Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. In anticipation of our series of episodes on diagnostic decision-making with Dr. Walter Himmel, Dr. Chris Hicks, and Dr. David Dushensky, we have here Dr. Chris Hicks, who's going to give us his best case ever when it comes to diagnostic decision-making. Dr. Hicks, let it rip. I chose this case because it was a cool resuscitation and it had had kind of a nice outcome in the end. But there's a twist at the end that makes it more memorable than maybe the event itself would suggest. The case was a 70-something-year-old female. We had very little information about her. What we were told was she called paramedics because she was feeling chest pain and shortness of breath. When they arrived, she was in extremis and then arrested. Uh, this was a, a BLS crew. Um, so in Ontario, that means they, they can't start IVs or start interventions. They just started CPR and transported her rapidly to hospital. They put on an AED because she had a non-shockable rhythm. Um, so she got to our hospital very, very quickly with good, high-quality CPR, but really nothing else done. And I was the sort of the one doctor on in our resuscitation area to sort of undertake this. I know it sounds twisted, but that's just kind of, we all recognize, that's just kind of fun. That's meat and potatoes. PEA arrest and you get you got a bunch of stuff you have to do. We were fortunate in that we had a few nurses, we had a bunch of paramedic students coincidentally just strolling through the department who ended up lining up to be CPR providers and it was in the middle of the day so we we had a lot of help available if we wanted it. Uh, and so this was a process of getting her connected to a monitor quickly, recognizing she had a non-shockable rhythm that was PEA uh, and required a few things in terms of vascular access, uh, airway management at some point, and then some suggestion of what the diagnosis is going to be and how we're going to treat it. Um, so we very quickly recognized, one, uh, that we couldn't get access on her. Uh, the nurses had tried a few times but couldn't get any peripheral access. So we ended up putting in a tibial interosseous with an IO drill. And for the balance of the resuscitation, that's all we had. She was waking up with chest compressions. We were getting a sense that we were sort of providing pretty good high-quality CPR. We hadn't really done much apart from some early sort of standard ACLS stuff when she got a temporary circulation back. During that time, we recognized a couple of things. One, she had a persistent end tidal CO2 of about 10 to 15, so terrible. Two, she had a persistent saturation with a good tracing of about 70%. Three, we were able to get an ECG during that period of return of circulation that showed a sinus tachycardia with a right bundle branch block. So everyone in the room at that point, and then she kept having, she kept rearresting, and we kept her blood pressure would trickle down, and then she'd rearrest, and we resume CPR and resume the resuscitation, and so on. Uh, at some point during a return of circulation, we were able to successfully intubate her, and her SAT stayed poor. So did her end title. What's interesting about this case for me is everyone in the room, I think. I didn't declare it. I probably should have. Everyone in the room was probably wondering if this patient had a massive pulmonary embolism. I was thinking it too, but for whatever reason, I couldn't couple that thought with the action of actually doing something about it. In this case, pushing a thrombolytic. And if you ask me now to look back on why, I couldn't tell you. But I was looking at the ECG and seeing the right bundle and the sinus tack and the patient in PEA who had shortness of breath. And I, for whatever reason, couldn't pull the trigger, even though it was right there in front of me. 
and I had the di- was I had the diagnosis on on the tip of my tongue. So it's not as if it didn't occur to me. Probably half an hour into the arrest, now she's arrested multiple times at this stage. Every time we get her back, she has a poor sat and a poor entitled CO2. One of my colleagues wanders by, who I should have called, and that's probably teaching point number one. He says, what's going on? And I say, well, here's the story, and we're just continuing with the resuscitation, and here's the ECG. And he looks at me, and he looks at the cardiogram, and he says, well, why don't you just thrombolize her? Yeah, absolutely. Sure, that sounds like a great idea. To that point, hadn't been able to pull the trigger on it. What was kind of interesting about, so we ended up pushing TNK in her as opposed to TPA. Uh, We gave her a 50 milligram bolus of TNK, but bear in mind, we still only had an interosseous line. I'd never pushed TNK through an IO before, but we didn't have much of an option. Speaking of having to act and having to commit and what's going to fail better and all the topics we're going to cover in the podcast to follow. We pushed a thrombolytic on her. We resumed CPR and about two minutes later, she had a return of circulation again. This time... Her saturations are 98%. Her end tidal CO2 was 30-something. And she maintained her hemodynamics beautifully uh, for the remainder of the recess. And we were able to get her up to CT and confirm that she had large bilateral pulmonary embolism. So the case itself, that sounds pretty garden variety. You know, that's kind of bread and butter for most of us in emergent arrest. Somebody that we like, somebody that we get back was, you know, kind of a good experience for everyone involved. The interesting things for me were, despite the fact, one, I take a real interest in this topic, I take a real interest in diagnostic decision-making, in team performance, and all those things, and I was still looking at this case and somewhat frozen about what to do until I had a colleague wander by and give me a little nudge and, and point me in the direction that I think I was probably should have been heading in anyway, but just couldn't. So never underestimate the value of having a friend there who can sort of give you a nudge in the right direction and help out. Calling for help is a key skill that I think as emergentologists, we probably don't do often enough. Two, you can lice somebody successfully through an interosseous line. And I went and looked subsequently, and I found a couple of cases here and there. It has been reported because we considered writing it up. But that was my first and only time shoving a TNK into somebody's tibia. And it worked. At least I think it worked. I attribute it to working unless we mechanically dislodged her clot with CPR. Who knows? And the final point is a bit more of a human point. So about a month later... Somebody told me that she was still in hospital, doing well, but still in hospital. And I think this is interesting that it had never occurred to me to go and see her. Never occurred to me. And I think we're all aware of when you have a patient who's in cardiac arrest in front of you, it does become a pretty mechanical thing. I hate to it sounds cold or inhuman, but they're just a kind of a thing that you're working on at the time. I didn't know her. I hadn't met her. She came in in cardiac arrest. I was glad we got her back, but if she died, I don't think that would have destroyed my day either. I would have maybe expected that to happen. But, you know, we got her back. She survived. She did well. She got out of the ICU. And suddenly there's this recognition that she's not a thing anymore. She's a person that we helped. We really legitimately helped. Like that was a clean save in that circumstance. And I thought it was curious that it had never occurred to me to go and follow up with this person and see how they were doing. So I did that. And it was honestly one of the most rewarding experiences I think I could ever recall. Going up and seeing a person who was now sitting at the edge of her bed and eating her meal, completely cognitively intact, saying, well, I don't remember much of that day. <laughs> I don't remember. I remember waking up in the morning. That's all I remember. But everything else was intact. And having her say, you know, I heard about you guys in the Emerge and all the work you did. And I want to thank you for that. And just having the opportunity to, to talk to somebody who, frankly, would have been dead without the efforts of you and your team was a richly rewarding experience. And I think it's kind of an unusual one in our profession. We don't get the opportunity to do that very often. You know, a lot of our sick patients stay sick or die 
or we lose track of them or we can't follow up with them because they have some sort of, you know, bad outcome down the road. This was somebody that you could actually see and talk to and they can express their appreciation and you can feel good about that and your team can feel good about that. I was able to take it back, that message back down to the department. She came through the department as a patient a couple of months later with something that was fortunately a lot less serious. Uh, and was able to reconnect with a bunch of the nurses there who worked on her the first time. And it was just, that's that was an experience that I don't think we get often enough. And when we get it, often we don't take advantage of it. So my final teaching point, I guess, would be, you know, if you have the chance to follow up with your patients, especially the ones that you've really been able to help out, that there's no substitute for that human connection that you can make with your patients. It's rewarding beyond really anything you can describe. It's a rare and profound experience to be able to go and sit down and talk to somebody who would have been dead had it not been for the efforts of you and your team, not to romanticize it too much, but that's a richly rewarding thing in a job where, you know, we have a lot of, it's it's a tough job that we do. And the feedback, that kind of positive feedback is pretty rare. Honestly, that sort of thing can sustain you for years afterwards. So I would encourage everyone to do that. In the upcoming series of episodes on diagnostic decision-making, we're going to talk about the intersection of evidence-based medicine, cognitive decision-making, and systems issues in diagnostic decision-making in the emergency department. We're going to talk about how the three spheres of EBM, that is, the best evidence, the clinician's experience, and the patient's values, enter into diagnostic testing. We'll talk about the cognitive biases we need to be aware of, We'll have a discussion on the evolution and geographic variation of risk tolerance, the true meaning of shared decision-making, the systems and individual factors that come into over-testing, and the strategies not only to prevent over-testing, but to be the best darn diagnosticians that we can be. All right, folks. Till next time.